All right, guys, I'm Ray, and welcome back to the Globalization Podcast. This week, we'll be taking a 20-minute dive into a very popular country as of now and popular amongst our kind of age group and peers, Japan. Japan's seen a large surge in Western interest and vice versa in the last 10 to 20 years. A lot of the stuff our age group kind of grew up with was heavily influenced from Japanese media, arts, and uh, music. And kind of coming into like, you know, the late 2010s, early 2020s, We've seen more and more, you know, J-pop, J-rock, K-pop, K-pop, um, Asian influence coming into Western culture and being widely accepted. Sure, biggest uh, group is now a K-pop band. So this week, we're going to kind of take a deep dive into that and go through some sections that we're all interested in. I've got the usual suspects, the usual guys with me here. So in typical fashion, I'm Ray, and I'll be looking at geography and location. Hi, I'm Ray, and I'm going to be looking at culture and society. And I'm Ben, and I'm going to be looking at doing business. Hi, I'm Dennis. I think we look at the Japanese economy. Uh, and I'm Connell, and I'm going to be doing the political environment. Okay, so to kick us off today, I'm going to kind of go through a bit of the background of Japan as a region and kind of where it sits in the world. Most stuff we already know, but just some background for us. So Japan exists as an archipelago located in Eastern Asia. It's actually the fourth largest island country in the world, with about 7,000 islands making up its archipelago, but only 430 of them are actually inhabited. So most of them kind of just sit because they're on a mountainous terrain and kind of as Japan sits on a tectonic plate, it's an earthquake zone and a volcano zone. A lot of us know this from kind of recent disasters. Um, so a lot of it is just inhabitable for people. The population of Japan primarily resides in the island of Honshu, which is where the capital Tokyo is located. Interestingly enough, um, out of Japan's 125 million residents, over 104 million of them reside in Honshu. But a lot of that population is concentrated in Tokyo. So guys, I'm sure you've seen like the videos online of like trains in Japan and they're kind of like packed and people are pushing them in to like physically fill up as much space as they can. Kind of crazy. So that's comparable to like UK in terms of landmass. The Honshu area and the UK actually have about 20,000 square kilometers difference between them. But the population difference is over 40 million people. So Japan's clearly very dense and making limited use of the space they can actually work with existing on a tectonic plate. Now, as a country, Japan has dated inhabitants back to 30,000 BC. So it existed for a long, long time, but as a sat as an island, pretty isolated. So they only started carrying out international trades in the 16th and 17th centuries. This started with the Nanban trade, which was when Portuguese explorers came over to Japan and tried to start exchanging goods. So it began with silver and lacquerware because this was popular among European aristocrats and the Portuguese saw to make a lot of profit off this. So trade after this sadly went south with the deals of the Europeans. Japan has a very strict culture as we'll probably touch on later and the Europeans had some bad trading ethics. If you know anything about European history it wasn't exactly you know the nicest way of doing business. It was a lot of pillaging and going behind people's backs. So the Japanese then locked their trade to just the Chinese and Dutch trading vessels. These would be marked so they can be identified going forward. And for 200 years, they stopped all other um, trading and just limited to China. And if China ever had issues, Japan kind of economy had a bit of a fallout. Um, this was also because Europeans wanted to push Christianity into Japan and the Japanese government weren't very fond of that sentiment being shared. Compared to nowadays though, Japan's a lot more invested in other countries. So I was actually reading a really interesting article on Britannica um, when I was kind of doing a bit of research for this. 
And 50% of Japan's export is now to the US, China, South Korea, or Taiwan. But the other half is so diverse that it was just categorized as other because the percentages wouldn't have been noticeable. So it was 2% to certain countries. The UK didn't even rank, in fact. It, was, it just got included in the other category because it wasn't enough. But they clearly deal with a lot more countries now. Just to, just to jump in there, Raymond, um, you mentioned the traded silver. Um, what, why was it that the traded silver, you know, as opposed to oil, gas, or sort of normal normal trades that other yeah. countries usually so, use? So, weirdly enough, Japan, probably because it says on a tectonic plate, but I'm not a geography expert, it doesn't have access to a lot of natural resources. In terms of relativity to its own size, Japan has a lot of, like, copper, iron, and silver, but compared to, you know, Europe and kind of you know, even the UK, that access to natural resources, precious metals, that kind of stuff, out of the park. They could not manage by themselves. So stuff like the mining industry is a still declining uh, activity in Japan's economy. But foreign imports now make up, you know, the most, uh, the majority of precious metals got obtained in the country. So Japan's also known as a, as the large importer for natural gas and coal. And it's the second largest importer of oil. So it just doesn't have any of those resources and needs to pay other people for it. To make up for this, back in the olden days of the 40s, Japan had a really, really strong um, fishing and agricultural scene. Thanks to the kind of landmass, they actually could grow a nice variety of crops on different islands. So up in Hokkaido, they could grow stuff like potatoes, whereas down south, they could grow more uh, subtropical stuff like uh, rice, tea, and tobacco. So they kind of used that, that was their trade activities, but as it grew into you know, future centuries, the um, GDP and actual makeup of the economy changed a lot. Yeah, so Ray, just to jump in, when I was researching, I, I saw that uh, Japan's GDP is now sort of mostly services. So what changed through that period? Yeah, so Japan got like insanely invested in tech and their strict That's kind strict of lifestyle, kind of lifestyle just, forced just forced them into a nice <laughs> position in the economy where you know Japanese products became a standard, they had a nice reputation and people became fond of them. And that on top of the service industry they kind of created with transport, services just blew up in the Japanese economy once tech became, you know, the modern norm. This was also helped by the fact that you can now actually connect the four main Japanese islands so people could, you know, transport goods that way. So services just skyrocketed up. Tokyo became an office hotspot um, to provide, you know, professional services. And now I think it's over 70% of the GDP comes from services sector whereas farming and agriculture is now only 1.1 percent of the gdp's makeup so it's a bit mad how much it's changed but that change you know as i said was facilitated thanks to transport until the 19th century there you had to kind of walk around japan and you couldn't go across islands very easily because they were broken up by water or you know it was a bit too much just to trek for a trip to hokkaido to get some potatoes i don't think people many many people wanted to make that much of a journey for it not, not very fun. So what they did instead was they just stayed on their main island. And then once we got into kind of the mid 19th century, that's when they pressed on and pushed for transport systems. So Kyushu was uh, connected to Honshu uh, with the first underwater tunnel in 1958. And then going forward the next couple of decades, they just built on more and more. So surprisingly enough, Japan actually just never really had much room for migration thanks to these lack of routes to mainland China or mainland Asia and just kept the kind of Japanese to the Japanese. Not very diverse. 
Thank you, Raymond. Uh, that kind of leads on to my point. So, Japan's main ethnicity is Japanese, with an overwhelming 98% of the population being affiliated with that. Although there is now 750,000 Japanese citizens with mixed heritage, which 1% of that will, 50% of that will be Chinese and Korean, and the rest will be negligible uh, different countries. Japan is a very homogeneous society, which basically means that, like I've touched on, um, they are all Japanese in majority. So this will create mixed perceptions about immigration from different countries. In 2015, less than 2% of the Japanese population included foreign-born nationals. But this is a lot. This, but there is a lot of Japanese leaving Japan to go for jobs overseas, such as in the UK or the US. Japan has encountered many issues with its population because it now currently has the second highest median age in the world at 48.6 years old. This is causing problems as their younger generation now moves across seas for different jobs and they don't have enough to fulfill their economy. Throughout history, Japan has a lot has long been against have having fully open borders, which led to the Maji Respiration, a pivotal movement in the history of Japan. This event was forced by many outside forces, such as America and Britain, which has led to issues of colonization and race and racism within the society. Since the new migration law is just now starting, it will be interesting to see the growth of the foreign population within Japan. Since the, fo since the foreign population is small, many students who travel to Japan for studies may encounter ignorant comments and overwhelming curiosity. Some people may ask intrusive questions or try and touch their hair, which will make students feel very uncomfortable. There is also a floating population of Western English language teachers and finance sector workers, which will particularly be living in Tokyo. These days in the country are usually very short and only up to three years because of the specialist working visa. The main language in Japan is of course Japanese, but English is now on the rise as it is in high demand as a key business skill. The two largest age groups in Japan are 25, 25 to 54, which is 36.8% of the population. And the second highest is 85 and over, which is 29.18% of the population, causing great concern for those, for those who do create an income, as the 65 and over are currently living off pensions from the government. Although from the ages of 15 to 24, the Japanese population has a, has a low average unemployment rate of only 3.6% 3, 3 of all males and females. And Roy, let me just chime in there two seconds. Um, I understand that you said Japan has a strong ethnic background. Um, how does this keep in line with their religious beliefs? So Japan has two main religions. So one is Shintoism and the other is Buddhism. Shintoism has over 70% of the population following, 
and Buddhism has just under 70% of the population. As the majority of the majority of the country will practice these both at the same both at the same time. Buddhism has came across in the sixth century from countries such as Tibet, Vietnam, and Korea. Whilst Shintoism would always have been in Japan and has been their main religion for many years. Religion isn't exactly preached in Japan, it's more like a moral code, a way of living, which can be defined as different from Japanese social and cultural values. Religion is a private affair, usually practiced by family, and it is usually discussed in everyday life and wouldn't take to worship on a regular basis. In essence, Shintoism is the spirit is the spirituality of the world and it's and this life, whereas Buddha, Buddhism is concerned by the soul and the afterlife. So basically, Shintoism is for birth ceremonies and marriages. And the Japanese would pray to the gods for a good harvest season, where Buddhism is more for things such as funerals. And just for us where they worship these things, uh, shrines are for Shinto and temples are for Buddhism. Just interesting facts on business. If we were to be in a business culture of Japan, I would introduce myself as I am Deloitte's Mr. McFadden, expressing the fact that they take great pride in their work. Other ways of conducting a business meeting is that when they would greet someone from a more senior or higher position than you, they would bow. You should bow lower than the person who is more senior. And Ben, I think you've looked into something from the business side of things. In Japan. Yeah, no, interesting that you actually bring up the business culture. Um, because not too long ago, I was reading a, a blog um, that was written by an employee at the Global Business Culture. Um, and it was basically just um, a blog regarding, uh, I suppose you could say, sort of uh, an experiment. There was a number of training sessions that were held at a London branch um, of a major Japanese investment bank. And um, in the training sessions, um, there was a few separate ones. So there was, and they were filled with Japanese expatriates uh, that had been seconded to the London office. And then with, in the training sessions with the London staff who already worked there. And there was a few training training sessions held, um, just general, general work uh, meetings. And then after the the training sessions were held, um, both the Japanese expatriates who had been seconded to London and the the London staff were asked um, if there was any major difficulties or to identify any difficulties that they came across when working with um, with each other and with the employees from different cultures and see um, from the results that came of it, it's actually fascinating because it's like a mirror opposite in terms of the response from both sides. Um, so just for example, some of the some of the ones off the top of my head that I'd seen where the Japanese staff had said that 
the London staff lacked detail when they were in, in the meetings, but then the UK staff would have said back to that that the Japanese were obsessed with detail. Um, you know, sorry, sorry, Ben, just to jump in there, you know, you're mentioning Japanese expatriates being seconded to the UK. Is it just as easy for someone outside of Japan to come um, into Japan yeah, and start well, a business? I think um, as like an entrepreneur or a startup, um, people would be fearful of coming into a city like Japan. But I think it is easier. It is easier than, than people actually think. There's a few conditions um, that businesses have to meet in order to be accepted into Japan to start. But um, one of them is that they have to register um, an office that's not temporary or virtual. Um, but there is an option available that if they don't have anything permanent, the Invest Japan Business Support Center actually provides a space for free for the first 50 days, which is great, which is a great option, obviously, if someone sort of hasn't sorted any um, any uh, permanent office. Um, and then after the first free 50 days, then obviously they have to they have to start paying up. Um, they then also have to have capital of five million yen or invest five million yen into the Japanese economy. Um, and they have to show evidence um, in their corporate bank account that they have they have this. And if they aren't able to do this, um, another option for them instead of the five million yen would be if they had at least two full-time employees. Um, who are Japanese permanent residents. So that's a, that's a way around it as well. There's a few different visas that can be obtained to um, non-Japanese residents coming into startup business. But as of March, in March 2019, a startup visa was introduced. And this has made things a lot easier for entrepreneurs and startups coming in. Um, so it's valid for six months upon the submission of a business plan and then the acceptance of a business plan, of course. Um, and then it can be extended for a further six months after that. So it's a great option for um, getting things up and running um, for the, the newcomers. And I actually seen an interesting fact when I had um, seen about the, the visa. And it was the, just basically talking how Japan is a great, a great uh, country for startups coming in. That 25 of the 44 Japanese companies that are ranked in the Forbes top 500 are actually engaging with startups in some way or another. So it gives them a lot of confidence uh, coming in. Ben, as a startup, um, where seem to be the ideal location to start growing your business? Yeah, so there's there's probably, I would say, three main areas. Um, obviously, you've got your um, Tokyo, which is the main, which is the main one, um, 9.2 million population, and it seemed to be the economic center of Japan, and considered to be the hub for businesses, tech, um, or sorry, hub for business, technology, and innovation. Um, Tokyo actually has a startup ecosystem in place, which is valued at over 14 billion, with many diverse sectors that are represented in that. And another one that is often overshadowed by Tokyo is Osaka. Um, and it's a, it has a vibrant ecosystem of entrepreneurs and startups, and it's thought that there's at least a thousand early stage startups currently in Osaka. And then finally, a new up and coming one that we have is Fukuoka, 
um, which has become the startup hub for not only Japan, but Asia as a whole. It has the highest population growth rate of cities across Japan. Um, and with the reasonable living prices and incentives for startups, it makes it an ideal um, city for um, people coming into Japan and starting up. Um, just then a quick fact about Fukuyuki that I've seen was that it has the highest rate of new business creation in Japan with 7% compared to Tokyo's, which is actually only 4%. That's pretty cool to hear, actually. Um, I just want to set some context, by the way, for any listeners. 5 million yen sounds like a lot of money, especially she'll probably just think 5 million yen, 5 million pounds. Uh, yen's worth a lot less. Um, 5 million yen is about 33,000 pounds as of when we're recording the podcast. So still a good amount of capital they need there, but yeah, definitely worth noting. Uh, another thing I know that you said there, Ben, was that you mentioned about how like Foucault is the next business hub, you know, it's going to essentially lead business creation in Asia. So does the policy, like economic policies in Japan, does that kind of like lie in line with pro, uh, promoting these startups on supporting it or what's the situation there? I think that's a, a really good point to raise, Ray. I think it's something that I can probably jump in on. Um, so just sort of looking from a, an economic standpoint and taking a sort of wide angle lens, if we look at corporation tax uh, primarily, so Japanese corporation tax comes in at around 23.2%. Um, so relatively middle ground uh, compared to sort of corporation taxes in, in different countries around the world. Um, as a benchmark sort of for our listeners, uh, the UK comes in at 19%. Um, so fairly clear to see from that, that that the Japanese economy isn't overly reliant on sort of multinational corporations and, and foreign investment coming in and setting up to bolster GDP from that frontier. Um, particularly not, say, for example, when compared against the Republic of Ireland, um, so again, Republic of Ireland has a corporation tax rate of 12.5%. Um, so, and as a result, obviously, massive multinational corporation presence. Um, but that's obviously a, a really interesting sort of fiscal policy view. But if we pivot to monetary policy, um, something that's actually really interesting is that Japan has a, a negative 0.1% interest rate. Um, so again, when compared to the UK, UK interest rates are, are currently at 0.1%, and that's the lowest the UK interest rates have ever been at in the 325-year history of the Bank of England. Um, so that's that's pretty startling. But uh, obviously, with a negative interest rate, it's a massive incentive for Japanese consumers um, to increase investment and, and, and consumption. So um, incentive to take money out of out of savings and invest it for businesses to invest, take more loans out, um, because obviously the the, uh, the the yield gain from saving uh, is negative. So as I say, massive incentive to, to increase investment. But really, the question is why? Um, and essentially, it's it's part of the Bank of Japan's attempt to try and get inflation to around 2%. So um, for context, that matches what the UK Bank of England uh, aims to hit at. 2% is relatively stable. Um, and why that is, is because Japan soars from lowflation, as Forbes has referred to it, um, in essence, this means that inflation is below that rate. So, for example, 2020 inflation in Japan was projected around minus 0.6%. Um, so, obviously, very, very low inflation. But this is the lowest of all G20 countries. Um, and essentially, in, in sort of more layman terms, what that means is that there's very, very low demand for, for goods and services uh, within Japan. So... 
when prices rise, uh, consumers cut consumption. And, and as a result, then firms just basically don't rise prices. Um, so they don't cut their profit margins. And with that, wages don't rise. And Dennis, see um, on, on that point, sorry, has Japan always had a problem with inflation? Yeah, so it's a good call out. Um, if we actually sort of, interestingly, if we take this way back to the beginning of Japan's um, journey, I suppose, to their position now as, as the third largest economy, um, and we, or we really go back to 1945, post-World War II, Japan had a massive inflation. inflation. Um, and to try and recover from the devastation of World War II, they obviously had to try and curb that down um, to be able to, to increase their GDP growth and, and start catching up with the major economies of this world. Um, so a key sort of moment uh, during that period was the Dodge Plan, um, which in essence brought in a uniform exchange rate of 360 yen to the dollar. Um, so what this did was it curbed the money supply. Um, so in essence brought down the, the, the inflation rates uh, and facilitated really the recovery period of 1945 to 1956, uh, in which Japan had a, an average growth rate, uh, GDP growth rate of 7.1%. Uh, which obviously continued relatively consistently until Japan had caught up with the major uh, economies of this world. That's, that's what like about uh, Japan's current growth rate, Dennis? Uh, have they been impacted by COVID-19? Yeah, again, another interesting thing to look at. Um, obviously, COVID's impacted the world economy, um, but different, different countries and economies have been impacted in different ways. Uh, so if you just sort of go into the uh, the stats in Japan's economy, so it shrunk by 4.8% uh, in 2020, which is the first contraction of the Japanese economy since the worldwide, worldwide recession in uh, 2009. Um, again, just for context for our listeners, uh, the UK's economy shrunk by 9.9% in 2020. Uh, but I think what's, what's really interesting is if we look at sort of the tail end of 2020, looking at the final quarter, uh, Japan's economic growth was 3% uh, more than the, the same period of 2019. Uh, and this was essentially due to increased demand domestically uh, and foreign as well demand for laptops, computers and consumer electronics, uh, which is a major export industry for Japan, as Raymond mentioned earlier on. Um, but if we look at the recovery, uh, in terms of recovery, Japan has issued a $3 trillion stimulus package. Um, this obviously is a, a pretty large sum, but I found out that this isn't particularly out of character um, for the Japanese government. $3 trillion? That's actually insane. Like, if you compare that, you know, how the state, like, that, that seems like it was kind of, you know, a, a fairly quick response. Like, the Japanese government seemed like they were quite on top of covid you know, compare that to the U.S. approach and even over here, like God knows what our government's still doing about COVID. Is this is this typical? Like, is it typical for the political policies to support people in such an active and useful way, really? I suppose I'll, I'll jump in on that one. And, you know, but before even getting into the depths of the main political parties, it, it might be a good, you know, might be a good thing for me to give sort of an overview of, of the framework um, of Japan's politics and hopefully as I impart the political environment you'll be able to you know build the relations but, but between the things you know Dennis has mentioned for the economy 
and uh, and all the different things that have already been mentioned and, and how they wrap up. So, I mean, the politics of Japan are conducted in a framework of a multi-party democratic constitutional monarchy. Now, that is a mouthful. So what does it actually mean? So the emperor is the head of state uh, and the prime minister is the head of government and the head of cabinet. Um, so he directs the executive branch. Um, judicial power is invested in the Supreme Court and the lower courts. Um, and sovereignty is vested so wh- in the when, Japanese people. What is this constitution? constitution? Like, why and when did it come about? What was the point of it? Well, I mean, it's a great question. Um, the, the Japanese constitution, it, it was propagated after World War Two. So on November 3rd, 1946, um, it was propagated and it sort of came into effect around the 3rd of May the following year. Um, and that was following the Japanese Empire's defeat of the Allies in World War Two. So the constitution itself is actually one of the most unique in terms of its creation and its ratification, at least. Um, but but we'll go back to uh, sort of you know, you know the main policies and parties. So several political parties exist in Japan. However, uh, the politics of Japan have been primarily dominated by the Liberal Democrats since around the 1950s. So the Lib Dems uh, were ruling the ruling party for decades since 1955. Actually, most of the prime ministers were elected from inner factions of the Liberal Democrats. Um, and what is their ideology? It's it's a it's a hard question to explain because they don't have a well-defined ideology, and it's probably because of its long-term government. However, uh, its members' positions could pro- broadly be defined as being to the right of the you know the opposition parties. Um, and tr- they traditionally identify themselves with a number of general goals, so rapid export-based economic growth, uh, close cooperation um, with the United States in foreign and defence politi- policies, and several newer issues that, that I'll knock it into, because I think this leads me on nicely to the point of tariffs. Um, so the Customs uh, and Tariff Bureau of Japan's Ministry of Finance um, administers the tariffs, and the average applied tariff rate in Japan is actually one of the lowest in the world. Um, so Japan has a preferential system of tariff grants, uh, um, lower or duty-free rates to products imported from developing countries, um, so the likes of your US. Uh, and Japan really is, you know, one of the major economic um, powers in the world. Hi. Has politics supported the change of the of economic goods over time, Connell? Uh, I mean, I mean, it's supported it in loads of ways. But if, if we look at the support of the change of goods over time, you know, Japan was was mainly agricultural products, and it, you know, it's do, it's done this transit transition into manufactured goods, textiles, steel, cars. Uh, and it's no longer competitive in agriculture because it has like really little farmland now. So today, simple manufacturing is too expensive because of the high wages paid to Japanese workers. So interestingly, Japan is also less convet- competitive in energy intense industries, you know, compared to that of other countries, like I've mentioned, you know, your US. Um, and, and speaking of other countries, I mean, foreign direct investment flows into Japan um, remain, remains low com- compared to most other developed nations across the world and it's actually relatively unstable as well. I mean according to the uh, Nations Conference on Trade and Development 2020 World Investment Report, uh, FDI um, reaching, was reaching $14.5 billion in 2019 that's up from $9.8 billion in 2018 uh, FDI stocks in Japan were estimated in 2019 at about $222.5 billion Japan remains the, remains the largest investor in the world, and Japanese multinationals' investments grew by 58%, reaching a record of $227 billion. It's probably due to an increase 
in, uh, in cross-border mergers and acquisitions. You know, Japanese multinationals uh, have doubled their investments in Europe um, and, and North America. Um, although Japan and China remain major trading and investment partners, relations remain strained by disagreements over the sovereignty of a group of inha- uninhabited islands in the East China Sea. Um, they're known as the Senkaku Islands in Japan. Uh, the Japanese and Chinese Coast Guards have operated in close proximity around the islands in recent years, leading to fears of an accidental clash. Uh, and I suppose that's a lot of information about um, the politics of Japan. I mean, that's a lot of information about Japan in general. And although we may have, you know, absolutely crowded your mind with words, I hope we can really give an overview of, of why, why it might be a good country, you know, for a young business person um, to make a startup and as usual um, thanks for listening and we hope you enjoyed this uh, this episode of the globalization podcast um, so from me and, uh, Cheers, and all everyone. the usual suspects well. uh, thanks, thanks, for listening. thanks for listening